Welcome to 239 Uncensored. Everything Southwest Florida and beyond with your host, Tim Jurett. This podcast covers it all. Real talk on issues from real estate to real crime. Join the discussion on hot topics to politics. Don't get left behind. Be in the know about everything Southwest Florida and beyond. Welcome to 239 Uncensored Southwest Florida and beyond. And listen, we have a great guest. His name is David Thibodeau. And some of you have may have seen the Netflix miniseries Waco. And that, that series was brought on by David's book. And it's pretty cool because I have a connection with David. We, were, we grew up in the same town, Bangor, Maine. And uh, let me check. See, we got you there, David. Are you on? Yeah, South Florida and the Keys. How y'all doing? What's going on? South Florida and beyond. That's, yeah, that's yeah. everywhere. <laughs> I, I appreciate it. Hey, David, I, it's, it's really actually awesome to have you on. I don't know if you really know, and over the years, I've, you know, I've been in law enforcement I've kind of followed you. I remember when the whole siege happened. Uh, I knew you were a part of it, and I was I was praying that you know everything worked out good for you. And, and fortunately, you survived the siege. And, and for those you don't know, David's a, a Waco survivor, and we're going to talk a little bit about that. It's just an amazing story, and um, you know we we actually grew up together, and we have a, a common friend. And, and uh, David was a drummer, and still is, I'm sure. Still probably jam. You still doing any drums at all, Dave? Or you know, not for the last year or so. I've been traveling a lot. I'm actually uh, down in Waco now. Okay. And my kid's still back in Maine. All right. <laughs> I was playing with a band. I, pretty much my whole life, I've been playing with a band up to just a year or so ago. So you've been real I'm busy. Sure I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll get back around to it. Yeah. Yeah, and it's kind of funny. We have a mutual friend and. And uh, David was a little bit younger than us, but always around in the neighborhood. And we have a mutual friend named Marty Noise, and his last name is like perfect for him because he used to hammer the drums and make a lot of noise and super hyper guy and just a great, great person. And uh, I haven't seen Marty. Have you have run into him at uh, all, David? Sure. Yeah, that is the perfect name for him. Actually. That's really <laughs> funny. Um, I have, I, I ran into him a couple of years ago. He's selling a medical supply. Uh, he's doing very, very well. He's got a family who has uh, Gorm, I think, or Portland, right in that area, southern Maine. Doing very, very well for himself. And he's, he's just a great guy. He's a, uh, his, his drum set he bought from a cousin of mine at the time, and that was the first drum set I ever played, was the drum set that he had. So, like, I, it was I, in his room that I discovered that I was going to be a drummer for the rest of my life. Yeah, <laughs> that's it, really it, interesting. And that's really cool. And, and I've gotten to, I've had the chance to read in, you know, audio books. You know, I'm one of those guys that drives down the road, listens to audio because I went to high school in Bangor and we didn't really learn how to read too well. <laughs> I listened to, yeah. to the audio books, <laughs> but it's more for time. And then I, I you know, I was enthralled with the, with the miniseries um, that was recently put out on Netflix and you haven't, haven't seen that miniseries. I've had numerous people that I told them that we've known each other and they're like, Oh my God, that miniseries is really good. And we'll talk a little bit about about that, but I know you hammer the drums, and I think you were pretty good at them, too. I think you were a real good drummer. If you were anything like Marty, you were good. I think I was fantastic, personally. <laughs> <laughs> well, you had to be, you know, had to be pretty good. That's not really up for me. It's not up for me to judge, is it? <laughs> no, well, from what I know, you were real good at you're a real good drummer. So let, let, let me ask you this. So you were well, let's go back a little bit. You were from Bangor, Maine, and how yeah. did you end up, you know, connecting 
with David Crash. I've had the opportunity, and again, if you haven't had the chance, read his book. It's unbelievable. And also, the the miniseries does not do that any justice. The book is fantastic. So, how did that all? I mean, how did you get to to that point out to Waco? Whoa, boy, that's a long journey, man. Um, it's I'll too try, too I'll long, too long. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I, I knew in Maine, and I was going to ask you a quick uh, trivia question. Do you remember what Marty's favorite band was? Probably Kiss. <laughs> Kiss. That oh, was actually Duran Duran. Remember? He was oh, really? Was it? <laughs> yeah, that was his. Like well, when we were first getting into drumming, he was all oh, the Duran Duran. He would play all the Duran Duran girls on film and all that. Was yeah, really yeah, girls on. I for some reason, I didn't want to neglect that. Yeah, that that no, that's good. Marty Noise. If you guys ever get the chance to ever meet him, and I'm sure some of the people in Maine are going to be listening to this podcast because I got it out oh, yeah. everywhere. Marty Noise is like he's he's, he's the best. I remember we used to dress up as Kiss, like Kiss Army, you know, and all that stuff. But Duran yeah. Duran, that's a good one. That's a trivia that I didn't get. Yeah, well, I, there's a specific period of time where I remember that was like his biggest influence. So that's why I say Duran Duran. But yeah, we did the Kiss thing too. Who, who the hell didn't, right? <laughs> I spent more time drawing Kiss, uh, Kiss face, fist faces, you know, Ace Freely. Uh, Gene Simmons yeah. and I did my math by far. I mean, I would I would spend hours and I'd be coloring, using coloring books, and oh god, that was a good time back then. Easy life. Yeah. All right, so anyway, back to your question. So I knew growing up in Maine that I wanted to leave. <laughs> I loved it. I had a great childhood. You know, my parents uh, still live there, and you know, I just uh, it was a great place to grow up. But I was I always wished that my mother would have moved to Los Angeles. Um, when I was a kid, so I would have already been there. Anyway, so, um, yeah, I knew that I wanted to be in Los Angeles, so as soon as I graduated from high school, I was I worked at a place called Lemport. It was a German car gearing company. I've heard and, of it. Uh, we, uh, yeah, I basically saved my money. And the following year, I graduated in 87, so by 88 I was going to, or 89, I was going to uh, Musicians Institute out on Hollywood Boulevard, right off Hollywood Boulevard on the cat. And I went to MI, you know, to music school. I spent a year doing that, graduated, obviously. Flying colors, had a blast, started playing with bands around town. And I spent a couple of years playing the whiskey, the troubadour, all those all those clubs. And I just, uh, it, was, you know, it was really hard. It was like pay to play. You never made any money, that's for sure. You were lucky if you'd get five, five to ten people in the audience to come see your band. Right. Because everyone was promoting. But um, I played with some really good guys. Um then I went into a guitar center one day. We were late for band rehearsal, and uh, there were two guys looking at one of the electronic drum kits. They asked me if I'd play it for them, but I played it. And then they said, hey, uh, my name's Steve Schneider. Uh, this guy here, David, he's a guitarist. I'm his manager, and we're looking for a drummer. Are you interested? I said, yeah, I'm interested in jamming with you guys. Steve handed me a card, and it said, uh, Cyrus Productions on the front or the back, and then all this religious scripture. Right uh, at the time, it, I didn't realize it pertained to the kingdom, but you know, it was all and instantly. I was like, ah, I'm not looking to be in a Christian band, thank you very much. And I was handing him the card back. And Steve basically just said, No, listen, uh, we're not exactly Christian, we're not exactly Jewish, we, we just understand the scripture, we know what it really says, what it really means. I've been all over the world with this guy. We talked to priests, uh, rabbis, teachers, anyone about what does the scripture really mean. We just want to know what it really says, and you know, we take it seriously. And that kind of impressed me. It wasn't, they weren't just preaching to me. They weren't asking me to believe in Jesus. They had, you know, they were looking at it as an intellectual study. And as I got to know them, I found that to be even truer. Like, they really cross-reference every verse. If there was a question on a word, they would look up the Hebrew and find out what does the word really mean. Interesting. Very impressive to me. That's what I was interested in. 
In other words, I always knew that there was a power to the scripture. You know, I mean, being my dad was a history, te- it's a history teacher. Well, it was a history teacher, he's retired. But so, you know, growing up, I was aware of uh, the, the, the confrontation between the Muslims and, and, and Christianity and Constantinople and, you know, Turkey and all the hotspots in the world, all the, all the thousands, millions of people that have died for the scripture, for God, for what they believed in one right. way or the other. Right. And to me, it was like, to me, it's like the book doesn't make any sense, but why does it have that kind of power? I went, I was baptized Catholic. I went to Sunday school, you know, none of it made any sense to me. A guy was swallowed by a fish. There was a great fun. A man was taken, a woman, a woman was taken out of some dude's rib and made into a woman. I'm like, what? What, what is hell? that? What are, yeah. they, what, are, what are they trying to sell me? You know, I used to believe in the tooth fairy too. Yeah. What the hell's going on here, right? right? You, so, so, so you didn't feel that you didn't feel that pressure when you met Steve and David initially. Like they, they kind of were coming on. Like, hey, listen, we we're looking for a drummer. You know, we yeah. we and you started to like listen to them because they weren't putting a lot of pressure on you at the time or, or ever really. Well, you know, <clears throat> no, it was an extremely gradual thing. I mean, I got to know these guys over the course of six months before they asked if I wanted to go to to Waco. Uh, for Passover, they said that hundreds of people would be coming from all over the world to learn the seven seals, and I could go if I wanted to. So yeah, it was definitely a gradual thing. But the music, the music is the intriguing thing that really kind of was the bond there initially. Would you say? Maybe? Well, yeah, that's all I wanted to do at the time. I mean, right. still to an extent. Well, now that I'm older, not so much. But right, yeah, you know, right. I, I like I still play my guitar and write songs, but you know the. It, it, the, the setting up and breaking down every weekend gets old when you get in your 50s. Yeah, right. It's like, ah, it's not so fun anymore, throwing cables and yeah. stereo speakers. And believe it or not, I used to do that with Marty and his, his numerous bands in high school. I'd be like, hey, I'll be the roadie Marty. I'll even work the lights or something, you know? This was back, back in the day, you know? It was kind of a fun thing that yeah. I always wanted to do. But, yeah, when you get older, it's not so fun. Yeah, I always wanted to do it like that. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Fun in the load, they can hang out with us, sure, son. Come on. <laughs> Here, carry this. We just want to show up and play and leave. You know, that's it. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> Life would be golden. No, that's the thing about music. If you make it and people are setting your stuff up, great, you made it. Right. But if you don't have that, you're working your butt off. Exactly. People don't even realize. They think, they think it's all glory. It's, it is so yeah. not. Exactly. Unless you're there. Unless you're on top, you know. So, Where were we? so you, yeah, no. So you were basically you. You met um, David and Steve out in L.A. And then how? Like I yeah. said, we're kind of rolling forward to get from really from Bangor to L.A. From L.A. to Waco, kind of that little transition from you know, like I said, make it. It's it's a lot longer, I'm sure. You know, <laughs> but that 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 sure. that journey is, is interesting. Yeah. Well, I just, you know, like I said, I wanted to go to music school. I went to music school. I chose L.A. because I always wanted to be in L.A. And, you know, after a couple of years of playing, you just realized what hard work it was for not a lot of payoffs, you know, unless right. it's just very, very difficult. Even getting a gig at the Troubadour was like you're calling every day over and over and over again. You're calling two, three times a week just to get booked. And that's over the course of two or three months. And finally, you just got to wear the guy, the booking agent down to get booked in this place like that. So anyway, it's not what it was all cracked up to be, but, you know, had a blast, had a very good time. But I kind of, I, I don't like to say I found God. God kind of found me. Right. And that's the way I look at it with David Koresh and, you know, going out there. The more that I learned about Scripture, it was kind of like Catch-22. The more that I wanted to learn and the more that I learned, 
And the more that I wanted to learn, the more I learned, the more I became convicted of what I was learning. And the more it started to change me as, as, as like who, who I was, I was starting to see a bigger purpose to my life than, than, than just playing for a bunch of drunk people who don't really give a crap Right. for all there to, you know, kind of hook up. So, you know, life has a funny way of moving in, in a direction that sometimes you don't really expect it to, but becomes in a way for the time being even more fulfilling. But the more I was learning about the scripture, the more it was coming alive. And the more I was becoming fascinated with it, and the more I was dwell- dwelling and contemplating on kind of the history behind it, and what is the future to it? You know, what is this question that everyone's always asked? I was even in the band that we named ourselves, Why Am I? <laughs> Why am I? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, I, and yeah. M and, and I. And, and that I, was yeah. the great angel question. It's, it's something, uh, you know, that was the, the name, a terrible name for a band, by the way, but that was the name <laughs> that I came up with. You know, mm-hmm. And I was just like, it is the universal question. What, why are we here for this limited time? And then where are we going? So I it just, you know, what was used to be important to me was still important to me, but not to the, you know, I, I started to just perceive things at a much deeper level. After learning about the scripture, for example, I couldn't even walk into a toy store and see it the same way. You know, I would notice that all the toys for boys were geared around war. And it yep. just seemed to be something, oh, okay, we're setting our kids up for a possible future of having to go and fight. It just seemed like, uh, you know, all the fantasy stuff was all about fighting. And then, you know, you contemplate the history of mankind, and it always has been a fight for survival and struggle, survival of the fittest. And so that's all a part of this thing. Yeah. And yet here you are as a person trying to lead a peaceful life and try to learn about God and try to learn about the love of humanity and God, and those things become very, you know, the, the violent things in life you're trying to do away with. But, you know, I think you find out, especially in our case, that it's going to come up and smack you on the face. <laughs> what were, yeah, what were some of the things, what were, yeah, what were some of the things that, like, pulled you in, like, the charisma of David Koresh and Steve and the, and the group? Yeah. I mean, did they, I mean, was it, like, after they spoke, did you kind of like, oh, man, that, that really... Makes sense to me, or did you kind of like yeah. talk, think about it in your mind, and then kind of put it together? Because ultimately, the the, the man was very smart and had had the ability to bring people to him. Obviously, yeah. It, it, I don't like the charisma thing because to me, he was a redneck hickey guy who isn't somebody that I was particularly would hang out with. You know, I gotcha. wasn't. You know what I mean? Uh, it just—he was a very good old boy, down earth Southern guy, and you know that's that's just not the people that I that I would run in circles with. And, you know, nothing wrong with it. It's just not—he did—he wasn't. <laughs> I said, and I've said this before in the past. It's really kind of funny. You know, I've been in a band with many charismatic people. If you know, most singers have to be charismatic to an right. extent to get out there right. and entertain a crowd. But when you're traveling with someone mile after mile and playing night after night, guess what? The charisma wears off really quickly. So I, I really never like that. I, and I get why people do this because they want you to think that a charismatic leader, people are compelled, people do whatever they say. David wasn't really that in my estimation. Okay. It was the fact he did have the scripture. He understood the scripture from Genesis to Revelation. He saw it panoramically as if it was happening before. This was his claim. And if you had studies with him over the course of a few days, a few weeks, a few months, you started to realize that he really didn't see the scripture that way. So it was like 
He saw the scripture in pictures, and he was able to describe it to you in a way that for the first time, in my case, I understood what the scripture was actually saying. Okay. And he didn't do it by just taking a verse here and a verse there. He took whole chapters and harmonized whole chapters of the major and the minor prophets and the apostles and put them together in a way that was like a complete picture. So he would skip through the Bible. He would do like a, a chapter of Genesis, then we go over to Hosea, and then we go to Isaiah. And then we go to Zechariah, and then all of a sudden we're looking at Paul. And what he's putting together, they're all saying the same thing about the same subject, but yet they existed in some cases hundreds of years apart, the writers of the Scripture. And that's what was really fascinating. It's like, how does he do that? Is this, has he memorized the Bible and is able to put it together as a gift that was given him? You know, that's yeah. the part that became really fascinating. But yeah. but then when he was done giving when he was done giving a study, he just went back to being Dave. Right. It's you almost know, like he like, stepped he stepped up. How y'all doing? Yeah. No. Stepped up during yeah. his study times and then when he wasn't in that role or in that position, he'd be back to where you guys were. Does that make sense? Or is yeah, that true? How y'all yeah. doing? What's going yeah. yeah, how y'all doing? Yeah. Rick's gonna go do this. You yeah. know, very southern. What was it what was it like though when you first okay, so you go from LA and you start and you go to, to Mount Carmel and you and you show up for the first time and you're with him. I mean, how many people were there at the time when you first arrived and then how how did that build while yeah. you were there? And what part did you have as far as your band? You know, I'm sure you guys had prayer sessions and things like that. How Far, uh, how big did it grow while you were there? I guess. Yeah, when I first got there, there was only like thirty people there. Oh and wow! The hardcore okay. group. Yeah, that was the group of mostly older, older women and some of the the younger women and, and the kids uh, that pretty much lived at Mount Carmel most of the time. Right. Uh, a lot of the older people, like Perry, the people that have been there through a couple of the different prophets. Mount Carmel been out there like fifty years. Yeah. Started by uh, Victor Howdeth. And then it was uh, run by uh, Ben Roden. And then when he died, his wife Lois Roden took over and started teaching the group. They all claimed to be prophets, by the way. They all Interesting. There, there was a proving. You had to prove that you understood the scripture and had a new light and was able to move on from where the last prophet was. So with Lois Roden, well, I'm not going to get too complicated into this. Right, but no. With Lois Roden, it was the Holy Spirit feminine. She started teaching Proverbs 8 and 9 as the Holy Spirit being a feminine entity, the wife or the maid of God, if you will. Mm-hmm. very interesting. When you read Proverbs 8, you start reading some of these scriptures, you're like, oh my God, that is a woman speaking to mankind who's claiming to be with God as he developed everything and created the earth. That, now, that's offensive to some religious people because, you know, the Holy Spirit is a masculine entity. So for her day, that was that was pretty big. Yeah, she was outside <laughs> her people, the norm, yeah, for yeah. most. Oh, definitely. Mm-hmm. So that's what kept the people in, and that's what kept new people coming, was things like that. The fact that the seven, it all established with the Seventh-day Adventist Church, but then branched off and branched off again. The Branch Davidians, the Davidian Branch Davidians. So the, every new prophet who came in, so to speak, had to had, have a new name for the group. So under David, I think it was the, the Davidian Branch Davidians. But we didn't call ourselves that. No. That was just a name for legally that he needed to continue on I don't know how to explain it. They continue on uh, uh, the, the religion as it stood. Okay. okay. But we just we consider ourselves to be students of the seven seals. Now, to get back to your question. <clears throat> so when I first got there, there was like 30 people, 30 to 40. And then I was told that people would start coming in. And every day, Perry would go to the airport two or three times. 
and bring people in. And I was like, wow. well, there was, I noticed there was a lot of black people coming from England. And most of the people from England had gone to seminary school. And David had met them um, going to the seminary schools and talking to people on the side and right. giving them studies. Now, they all told me the same thing. And these are probably five or six or seven different groups of people that came in and they all said, I said, what are you guys doing here? You know, when you start meeting people, it's usually the first question. And they all told me, you know, I learned more from about the scriptures from this guy in one night than I had my years of studying at seminary. So I quit giving the school my money and I decided to come here and learn from the horse's mouth, if you will. Unbelievable. So I heard that story over and over again, and that became really fascinating. I knew that Steve Schneider taught comparative religions at the University of Hawaii. Mm -hmm. He left and gave everything up to come learn from David. David, he tried to prove David wrong for six months when he first met David, okay. scripturally, and he couldn't do it. So he joined and became, I guess, you know, probably, uh, he brought in more people than anyone else, Steve did. So, you know, when you hear these stories of people that are pursuing higher education and over and over it's the same situation, they, they're just learning more from this guy who's giving it free. Why would they pay their money? And it just kept, that just kept happening. So it went from 30 people to 130 people. A little wow. like 100 people came in during that just a few days. And then Koresh started giving the studies. And, and we're going for two weeks, the, uh, the Feast of Tabernacles and, 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 the Passover were the periods of the year where David would give the serious seven studies, seven seal studies. And it was an amazing, you know, it was amazing. That's where you would get the 10 hour night studies. See, that didn't happen every night. It was only for that two week period. Gotcha. Very intense. Gotcha. As he's going through the entire scripture, he's showing you the first seal, the second seal, the third seal, the fourth seal, the fifth seal, where they scripture, what they're about, what they mean, and then where the group's going with it. So that took a lot of time. People don't realize that. I, you know, people will sometimes ask me, well, what's the first seal? What's this one? I, I can't tell you. We would have to have a Bible open. And you would have to have like right. two Go days through off from work. Right. And right. I'm not doing that. That's, right. not, that's not me. So could David, so, could, and, could, could, could David really go for like, because I, I, you know, I've seen it and heard about it. Yeah. Can he really go for 10 hours? I mean, I teach and I, I teach for four yeah. hours and I'm done. I'm like, at the end of the day, I'm just exhausted. I mean, could he really do that for 10 hours? Yes, he could really do That's it. Amazing. I saw him. Well, he not only would he do that, like he like they was giving a big study of the group and then someone sure. showed up. Sure. Much much like like say he was at the end of the night and someone showed up who wanted to know. He would start over and start showing that person and he would literally we see him fall asleep and wake up a couple minutes later and continue right where he left off. Wow. He wow. did that often, yeah, out of exhaustion. Now, what was the setting so, like? Were you guys sitting? Is it was it? I know we. If you've seen the Netflix series or the miniseries, is it is it kind of like yeah. a, a large room? Did it have chairs or was it yeah. you know just kind of like the way it was uh, kind of portrayed on TV? Yeah, the Netflix series got it pretty right. I wow, mean, it's neat. Ooh, when I was when I the set the set was built in Santa Fe, New Mexico. They did filming in, of that in New Mexico. And when I first walked into the studio and I walked into where they had created the, the, the chapel area, I was absolutely blown away. Really? I mean, I remember I just, uh, yeah, I sat on that stage. I laid on the stage. I played the drum set. And wow. I sat on the pews and I was just like being there again. So they got it incredibly accurate. I was, I was friggin' blown away, frankly. I spent a lot of time in that dark room because just being there on that stage again was a God, it was for that. It just brought back so many memories of 
of, of what had taken place. And it, that it was kind of like the reality that really happened. Because a lot of times through the years, when you go through something heavy like that and you survive it and you're gassed, if you think you're going to die, if you think you're going to be shot, then all of a sudden you come out of it, you know, you get to a point in life where a couple of years down the road, you know, you're playing in a band or whatever, your life's completely different. And it's, you never forget it, but there's times where you just, you're, you're just yourself. Right. And you don't, you know, you kind of, you kind of do forget that it happened. You know, you kind of block it out and then you're watching, watching TV one day and there's the building burning and you're like, Oh, I was there. Oh, wow. That's right. That happened. Unbelievable. So life becomes like a dream sometimes. It's really freaking weird, man. Going right back. They, they did a great job with the set. I was just really, really impressed with it. They're on the stage and uh, Taylor Kitsch came in. And he goes, ah, Tim, it's good to see you sitting here. That's that's awesome. He goes, I come here too sometimes to try to get into the character. I thought that was just really interesting. I, I thought I was the only one in the studio. And he played he played he played David in the in the yeah. movie. Yeah, that's that's that must be kind of interesting. Did they? Now you you wrote the book and and the book um, the series was made on your book. But did you did you give them information and did you consult with them and talk to them about how things were? Did they? Yeah, I was a consul- I was a consultant on the set as well. I, I would you know go there and work with the guy that was developing the the set and say, yeah, this was like that. That was more like this. The flag was kind of like over here, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, what was that, that like? Was what awesome. was that like? Was that kind of was that kind of? You know, I lo- I loved all of that, dude. Stranger, you liked it, yeah, yeah. I loved it. I loved. It. I I wish I could consult on movies every day of my life. Yeah, pretty cool, right? <laughs> it was, pretty cool. It, it, it was pretty, yeah, it was pretty cool. I mean, it was a t- obviously you know, a terrible situation. Like yeah, it was obviously a terrible situation that you went through, but to, you know, years later, like you said, to go back and, and you were really probably one of the only people that could put that together and be as realistic as, as possible, you know? Yeah, there's just a handful of us. I mean, you know, Clive's still around, Sheila's still around, some of the, the kids are growing up now, but. You know, so memories are, are different from for, for different people. Uh, fortunately for me, I'd, ri- I'd written the book just a few years after all that happened. And, you know, I wrote the book out of frustration. I was just so upset with the way that the media had betrayed it. And the FBI was no help. I mean, those guys basically controlled all of the information for the entire 51-day siege. And whatever they told the press, that's what the press would put in the papers, would put on television. And, you know, they even made an ATF propaganda film while the siege was still going on. And, you know, that film, by the way, especially because I know you get a lot of law enforcement officials. So I think it's important to talk about Ambush at Waco and what a complete piece of trash that was. Ambush at Waco, even the writer of that movie who was given the FBI the, the information to write it from the government, he wrote that, that he has apologized since to all of the survivors for writing it. And he said that it was a complete straight up propaganda piece. And he's ashamed that he had, he had written it. He just didn't know what the truth was at the time. Mm-hmm. And he's apologized to all of us. And he's basically, you know, he's basically condemned the entire, the entire film. Mm-hmm. And that's public record. Anyone can check that. I'm not just making that up. So, you know, that's a pretty powerful statement. I mean, it shows the, the, the ATF guy is going in, and instead of to suppress the dogs, instead of shooting the dogs, they have fire extinguishers, like they're putting the dogs out or they're making the dogs get away from them with fire extinguishers. No, they went in and they shot our dogs first thing in a pent up area. That's the in fact that the trials in San Antonio, some of the indications were some of the first shots were fired at the dogs, and that must have, might have started the entire 
uh, conflagration, if not conflagration, but the entire firefight on the very first day on February 28th. Watching that was like amazing how that, that played out. And I know we talked the other day and as you know, I've been in law enforcement for 30 years and actually the day before we talked, we had a situation where we had a, a, a barricaded subject. So we understand that, you know, there's, there's a, a, it's time sensitive, but I think sometimes, um, and, and kind of played out that people get pushed up for time. And the reality is the loss of life at the end of the day is the most important thing. And to try to get some sort of resolution between you folks and the law enforcement would have obviously had a different outcome. But, you know, again, going back, and if, if it wasn't played that way by everybody, you know, getting the information back and forth, then obviously it turns out, you know, a, a real bad like it did, you know? Yeah, absolutely. You know, communication is ultimately so important when it comes to a situation like this. And that was a big part of the problem is, you know, they came in and shot at us. So some people fired back. They had helicopters in the back that were shooting into the building. That's against the Posse Comitat attack. Right. They denied the helicopter shot, yet we have eyewitnesses on the ground who saw the helicopter shooting. We have, there was evidence of the, hel- of, the, of the helicopter shooting because of the amount of holes in the roof of the, of the building. And yet they're going to sit there and say that they didn't fire, and that's what they're going to tell the public. So obviously the people inside are pretty upset about that. And we're like, you know, you're lying. You're lying to the entire world. And they're like, no, we're not. <laughs> and it's like, well, yeah, you are. And that's uh, right off the bat isn't going to, you know, there's nothing that is compatible there. There's nothing that's harmonious. It's really hard for a negotiator to come in and be able to paint a decent picture when they start off lying to the, yeah. about the people inside the building. It's, it's a disaster. Yeah. Now, when you were when you were when you were in there, were you able to were, co- communicate to? I know there was some stuff uh, with some communication with your mother and that type of thing. Were you able to communicate to anybody, or was it kind of like a central point that the communication had to go through before it could go out, or you just didn't have the ability to communicate? What I mean, obviously there was cell phones. No, we didn't back have the ability. Yeah, no, nothing yeah, like there that. There was no ability. No, there was no ability to communicate. All we had was the telephone. And they cut that off pretty early. David was giving an interview to someone, a uh, news agency, I can't remember who. I think on the first day, right after we were attacked. And then yeah, I cut that off, and then they gave us a phone line so we could only reach the FBI directly. So, yeah. This was the FBI totally controlling the situation. It's, I think it would be very interesting to see where something like that would have gone uh, you know, with Facebook and, you know, just knowing that there's um, social media, there's other ways to get the message out. It might have gone differently. I I don't know. But uh, definitely the FBI controlled the narrative 100%. And that was a huge part of the problem. Yeah. There, you know, yeah obviously, one-way communication in the, in the situation like that because it, and they controlled it. So it was yeah. – and, and we didn't have cell phones and – you know, one of the things now with, you know, active shooter situations in schools, malls, movies, the kids, yeah. the kids are calling their parents and the parents are coming before the law enforcement officers even get there. So you, you guys, I can imagine back in that situation, you just didn't have the ability to get that communication out. And then, like you said, once it was cut off, then you were pretty much done and, and you really couldn't. And I know your mother, of course, was portrayed on, on I'm sure it's fairly correct, on this miniseries as coming to Waco, and I'm sure she was concerned about you and 
the, the whole thing. It just must have been a tough situation for everybody. It was a long period. Yeah, that's 51 days. Yeah. That's a long time. Yeah. You know, we always focus this on David, but there were so many other people that were involved in it. Are you, what are you yeah. doing now? What's what's going on in your life now? I know you've got some things in, in <laughs> works and some things you're trying to do to really bring some of your folks back and try to do some things with, with um, you know, Mount Carmel. And what do you have in plans now? Well, there's a lot on social media. I'm trying to figure out how to, um, within my own circle, small circle of influence on Facebook, if you will, I'm trying to, I'm trying to encourage both sides of the political spectrum to start to stop yelling at each other and start talking to each other, and and debate each other without without swearing, without a- accusations, because it just seems like one of the things that is happening with social media and the algorithms uh, within social media is people are being fed information that they want extreme on both sides. And I think that's ripping the country apart. And it's mm-hmm. keeping people who believe uh, right-wing, very mm-hmm. right-wing, and it's people that believe left-wing, very left-wing. And I think most people in America have, are pretty in between. But it seems like we're separating the extremes, and this is all being done through technology. And, I, you know, I mean something needs to be done about that. We need to start talking to each other and bring the groups back together. Um, Cause I, I, all I can think of is civil war. Yeah. I, I mean, it does. I never thought I would live to see anything like that in my lifetime. It's frightening. Yeah. It does give you, get you real nervous. Cause you've got such extremes to both sides. And like I said, I believe like yeah. you, I think the majority of people are kind of like in the middle, Hey, we can live with, you know, this, let's just come together and talk about it and try to, you know, figure some yeah. things out. And I know a little bit about you, read about you, and, you know, kind of in just in our conversations, you seem to be like that person that has a serious calming effect on people that's can, very well-spoken, able to talk to people, communicate, and keep things, you know, calm. Because we talked about it the other day. My, you know, like I said, my career in law enforcement, 30 years, what you've gone through, and you even told me, you're like, listen, I, I'm very supportive of law enforcement. I wasn't supportive of how the feds handled that situation down there. And, and like I said, I wasn't there. I don't know much about it, but based on what you're telling me, things could have been done differently, but just talking to you in the last couple of days and, you know, over, you know, conversation, I can tell that you've got a very, very good demeanor and how to bring people together and, and kind of make yeah. things good. And I, and I think that you've been given that you've probably been given that position by somebody higher than us that, they can probably do that and make, make some real good things in, in the future. And, you know, what, whatever it takes to get you in that spot to do it. And, you know, that, that mouth to be able to do that, that would be, that'd be great. The mouthpiece, I should say. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <David and> <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that you having that ability and you be put in this position and people know you a little bit and you have that influence. I think that's important. It's important to understand both sides of the situation. Like obviously, the majority of police officers that, that, you know, that take that vow to serve the public want to do just that. They want to serve the public. I, I think I told you, I, I have never personally had problem with, 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 with cops in the past other than the Waco. And, but I'm also, I'm also a white man. So I can't speak to the experience of a black person that gets pulled over and the fear that they feel, because I'm sure a lot of times, you know, um, they are targeted for being a color. That's terrible. It's just, that shouldn't be happening, 
You know, that's something that happened, you know, during what we think was, you know, the civil rights movement. It, it, it's, I, I thought we were past all that, but the last, I think, four or five years has shown me that we're, we're not past that at all. And, and, and you know, the, the deal is, is the system, and this is the problem with Waco, too. The reason that we're seeing where we are, well, the reason where we are now with BLM and Atif and everything that's happening is because the system hasn't done a very good job of policing itself. As we should understand, they would, or would the system not protect itself? That's what systems do. It protects itself, just like any entity protects mm. itself. Mm. But when, when a black kid, in, in, you know, in, 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 in a metropolis, in a, in a major area, is shot running, and then there's a weapon plant on him. Obviously, there's a problem there. And then when all the co- when, when when the person responsible goes free, when it gets to the court setting, that's a huge problem. Without justice, and this is what I've said over and over about Waco, Waco, and where we are now is a lack of justice. It's not just the fact that that someone strangled the kid out with his knee to the point a man to the point where he was killed in front of all of us. That was a horrible thing. But the reason that everything is blown up is because of the years and years and years and years of that kind of crap. And the fact that the system protects those that serve the system instead of, in other words, the law should be for everyone, period. If you're a good cop, you should have nothing to worry about. But if you're someone who maybe shouldn't be in law enforcement and you do something like that and it's proven, you should get the full extent of the law. I mean, nobody should be above the law. And that's why... The, the country is like a tinder, just tinder ready to go up. It's frightening. And it's all about the lack of justice. That's what it is. That's what Waco was. It's the lack of the fact that the ATF and the FBI guys that looked at the camera and lied to the American public, not only did they get away with it, they got raises, promotions, and, 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 and they get their retirement plan. Okay. The fact that nothing adverse happened to them. It, 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 it's a it's a blight. It's a it's a horrible thing. It is it's what the constitution. It's what we need to sort out constitutionally. Yeah, no, I, yeah, no, I totally understand. You know, and, and I'm fortunate. Um, I've been, like I said, I've been in the in the field for a long time. We've we've we got a very professional organization down here. We do hold people accountable. But you're right. I mean, nobody, and, and we always say it. And I know some people are kind of tired of it. Nobody hates a a, a bad cop more than a. a a, a good cop a doing good the right cop. thing. You know what I mean? And, and some people are like, yeah. hey, listen, I heard that before. But the reality is, is like, you know, I'm in a supervisory position. What I do, um, we go out every night and we, we, we protect everybody's constitutional guarantees. Now, do we have one-offs? Do we have situations where um, things aren't always right? I'm sure that that does occur. Maybe not so much that I feel in my department, but the, you know, the thing up in, in Minnesota, situation up there I, there, I don't think there's anybody that has any reasoning or any excuse for that, you know. So I think, like you said, the best thing to do is try to work through it and try to be more professional, try to understand both sides of it. And, and again, you know, it's it's going to be it's going to be a struggle for us, but I think we can, you know, push through it from both sides. And I think there you know, there'll be, you know, some good that comes out of everything. And, and again, there's so many, like you said, there's so many good people out there doing the right things for the right reasons every day, law enforcement, as well as the community. You know, we, we love our community down here where we're at, but you know, one incident could really make that go, that balance go away very quickly. Yeah. 
So, yeah. One one last amazing, thing. Man. One last thing. Where we we where we got you. I know you were talking about possibly and possibly looking at maybe doing something more on the Waco. I know you looked at the TV miniseries. You know, possibly doing a a um, you know documentary or something of some sort. Is that still maybe something that's on the table or something you would like to talk about? Or it's one of the reasons I'm in Waco. Okay. Okay. Good. <laughs> I, I thought I, I thought I thought I was coming to Waco for a couple of months, right? At the behest of some friends of mine, and then I started staying out at the property of Mount Carmel. Oh, okay. And the old guy that's running running the property, he's oh my god, I don't even want to talk about him actually. Right. Just a uh, he's just a he's someone who studied under Lois Road and came back after everyone was killed, started just living on the property, and at first when Clive Doyle got out of the jail, he lived back at Mount Carmel. And, you know, he just gave Clive a hard time. He ended up kicking off one of the survivors. Clive left. He couldn't deal with him anymore. And uh, then he kicked off an old lady who was one of the survivors. I think so uh, if he could have it about Carmel over a certain number of years, then he gets it for himself. Oh, okay. Just, nobody can deal with this guy. Yeah, he's just a piece of work. I'll be put it that way. Got it. I made an agreement with him because there were so many people coming out there. And I was, I was giving talks, I was giving tours, I was talking to people. I thought he just, it seemed that he got upset that nobody cared about him. And so he asked me to leave. <laughs> really? And so it's just, it, yeah, it's, he's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. He's taking, what bothers me is the fact that people that are going to Mount Carmel, he's claiming that he's a survivor and he's taking money on behalf of survivors, but none of the survivors can even stand being in the same room with this particular individual. And so, anyway, I don't want to bring it down. No, that makes uh, it difficult. No, I can I can picture it from your side. It that really would be does. terrible for you because basically it's like a yeah. yeah, it's like a military guy that's got on a uniform that never served and never did what he said he's going to do. And that's just an example. Yeah. I'm just, <laughs> I mean, and you're out there, and I think you're trying to like foster communications relationships with people. I think when people come in, from what I can gather, people come in and they talk to you. They they walk out enlightened versus another form of, you know, feeling when they leave. But I think you're trying to just, you know, stimulate the whole thing and try to let people know exactly what happened. Is that correct? I mean, is that fair yeah, assessment? Yeah, I, like, I, like I would like for it to be a memorial and a museum out there. and It's impossible with this individual. Okay. Um, but there's just really no way to fight him right now without a lot of money. I'd have to hire him proper attorneys and all that. It's just everything requires money. So. Yes, I got you. Um, I got you. So what I'm working on, I mean, because the series has reached so many people, I really want to do a proper documentary. Now, you may say, but there's hundreds of documentaries about Waco. Most of them are terrible. They really suck. And I say that in all earnestness because there's always, even if they're good, and they talk to a lot of people who knew David, they really get like kind of the other perspective, right? Right. It always ends the same way. The people inside set the place on fire, committed suicide. It never talks about the fully automatic weapons fire at the back of the building. They never talk about the FLIR tape. There was a camera, or there was a plane flying above Mount Carmel that recorded FLIR infrared video of what was going on. And we have two explosions at the back of the building right before the fire starts. We know for a fact there were pyrotechnic devices that the FBI used in the building. There were something like six to seven pyrotechnic devices that were mislabeled as silencers the evidence locker in San Antonio. So the government claimed for years no pyrotechnics were used at Waco, period. 
yet we have six or seven that were mislabeled. Mm. So that that's true. That, that these are things that are facts now that most people still don't even know about. And my point is this: if we have fully automatic weapons fired at the back of the building and people were trying to exit the back of the building and they were being shot, then it's not a mass suicide. It's a homicide. And if even one person was shot, even if some people didn't take their lives because they were trapped, wanted to put themselves out of their own misery, I totally understand that. But you can't call it a mass suicide if someone was shot trying to escape the back of the building. And this is the thing that the FBI says, that their own clear tape were sunlight reflections. That's how they justify it. Mm. These are not fully automatic weapons fired, sunlight reflections. But if you take that clear tape and you put it against any other military clear tape, the signatures of the fully automatic weapons fire looks exactly the same. So there's, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You'd have to be a complete idiot. I think in my personal um, unmilitarized opinion of being a, a civilian, any a 13-year-old kid can look at that infrared and say, that is fully automatic weapons fire. There's no way that's on that reflections. Yet that's how they justify what, is, what has happened and, and, and how the government gets out of this. So I'm sorry, but the facts are the facts. And I just want people to be able to go have a proper documentary and look at all the facts before they make a decision and say it was a mass suicide and everyone set themselves on fire and killed themselves. There's other evidence, the completely opposite of all the documentaries that needs to be considered before, before the world makes that decision. That, that's the way I look at it. Well, yeah, and you, and you got that knowledge, so you were there. I mean, and, and like I said, that number of people is, is very small that group of how how did you i know we saw a little bit but how did you get out of there david on that day how did you get out sure well the nine people that survived uh with the exception of graham craddock came out of the front of the building and the side of the building where the cameras from a few miles away could still see us uh, i came out of the hole on the side of the building uh, right behind the chapel area and mm-hmm. before the gym there was a hallway okay and in that hallway, there was a window, and the tanks made a big hole in the window. And uh, four, four of the people came out of that hole. Um, Derek Lumblock, uh, Jamie Castillo, myself, and Clive Doyle. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I mean, what had always bothered me for years was the fact that there was only one person that came out the back that was found in the, in the, um, in the, water, terrier, in the water tower at the back of the building at a house. And that little house, that's where Graham Craddock was. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's the only one, the only one. And the majority of the people were, were at the back of the building. They were either, you know, in the chapel, you could have gotten in the courtyard and in the back. That would have been one way of escape or in the cafeteria area where all the kids were. Nobody said, nobody came out of the cafeteria and let them tell about it. Why? Why? The, the, the law of averages would say if nine people come out of the building from the other side of the building and the mm-hmm. front, mm-hmm. why wouldn't someone come out the back unless they were being shot? Yeah. So there should be someone that told to, to tell us what happened at the back, but no, you know. Yeah, great, great <laughs> points, though. Yeah, great points, great points. Th- these points are never made; they're always looked over. It's it's very frustrating. Yeah, no, and and I think bringing all that stuff out, and, I, and I'm sure you're you're probably have some channels to be able to get that information to the right people that maybe can do this documentary. But you know, we're we're always going to be interested in that. Something that. You know, I think if you need to get your story out, we're all all about like wanting to hear that. So I, I really want to get you back on again. I, I like that when you said we can do a part two and uh, and just good good discussions and, and informative. You know, you're just very interested in 
very well spoken and you're able to explain the situation. So I can't thank you enough for, for coming on today. And, you know, again, we go way back to the neighborhood, but to be, what are we at? Probably 35, 40 years later, we're back here doing this. I'm in the law enforcement realm and you're, you know, out to Waco trying to get set some things straight. And uh, I can't thank you enough for, for coming on. It's been, it's been fantastic. Hey, man, thanks for having me, Tim. I appreciate it. It's good yeah, to talk to you. Yeah, and we will stay in touch, but I, well, I definitely am going to take you up on that part, too, and we'll be following you. And if anything comes up, I know you got people, you know, coming at you from all different angles. I'm sure since it, this Netflix series has come up, too, it's, it's probably just been blowing, blowing up for you. So uh, we're there for you, whatever we can do. Try to help you out. If you ever get, your, get the word out, let us know. And, uh, again, we're a small area in, in southwest Florida, but having people on like you really helps us get the word out and get information above and beyond the 239. Remember to read David Thibodeau's book, Waco. And if you get the chance, Ben watch Waco on Netflix. It's very interesting, and you'll really enjoy that. Thanks for listening to 239 Uncensored, and we are out. Please make sure to download and listen to us on Apple, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. And don't forget to like and share on social media. This has been a Studio 239 production.